Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. In today's episode, we're continuing to dig into Paul's words. Today, we're talking about passages that are often used to exclude women from ministry. We'll place these words in the greater context of the communities that Paul's talking to, along with the greater context of the story of scripture. We actually think there's some good keys to take away if we uncover all the layers that have been added onto these passages. Let's dig in. All right, today we are getting a little bit more specific and maybe academic because it's important for us to have a really clear understanding of the layers that are at play here. And there's just been centuries of dominant culture, male theologians, that we're trying to brush away uh, some of the layers that have been added on to the text and now uncover what is the actual text saying. So we'll do that by looking at some Greek words and the wider context of the communities that Paul is writing to. And I'm excited about it. I think we have talked in past episodes about how often um, women's ministries have kind of almost lowered the bar for what we expect women to study in scripture. And so I love having these digging deep moments in scripture. And I think for men, it's a great opportunity to really see some of these deep layers um, and see not just a surface layer, maybe understanding of why they would affirm women's leadership, but to really have a, a good grasp of what the text is saying. Yeah, yeah, I think this is such a good exercise in general for understanding what goes into biblical scholarship. I think this will be just good tools for all of us for further Bible study in general. And I do think these passages warrant some pretty significant wrestling and some pretty significant digging. And I do just want to say, I want to get ahead of some concerns people often raise that when we have to do significant historical context and maybe language study around these passages, there's often an accusation that we're essentially doing hermeneutical gymnastics to have to get around the meaning and to in order to make it shape and fit what we want it to say as fe feminists. And I just think that's an unfair accusation and one that is I think just diminishing the role and significance and helpfulness of biblical scholarship. I don't think it's a bad thing to be thoughtful and thorough scholars. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to get around the meaning of Paul's text. We're actually trying to dig into what he's truly saying. Oh, that's so good, Heather. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I do think that's an argument that we hear often but I think as we'll get to some of these texts, it's a matter of intellectual integrity to just ask good questions of the text and say, does this make sense? Are there things that are held in tension here and how can we navigate them? And I just think, like you said, it's really just a matter of good scholarship and, and taking that seriously. And I think that's what it is to take God and God's word seriously. Like this is not just an intellectual exercise, but to say, I really believe that there has to be something for us in these passages. And so we're not going to say like, we're just going to toss these because of other passages in scripture. We're actually going to contend with them and say, 
what what's going on here and how can we get a better understanding of it? Yeah, and I have an encouragement for male listeners in particular for this episode that one, I just think it's really important that you're here and I hope you keep listening. And two, there may be a skepticism that you feel as we read these passages and we're expressing deep discomfort and sadness and frustration. And you may catch yourself feeling, why are you so upset about this? Or why is this a big deal? Or why can't you just accept it? And I would encourage you to listen and, and empathize with us and consider if the texts were reversed, if genders were reversed and men were being told to be silent in the church and men were not permitted to have authority over women, how would you feel if that was being said about you? And so I think this is a real opportunity for empathy for male listeners to figure out and join with us in how does this affect women to be read and interpreted the way it often has been? And where could it be a really healing balm to do this exercise and this work of biblical scholarship to see what else might be in the text? That's so good. And I think we often have heard like emotions, having an emotional response to the text be a negative thing. Mm -hmm. And I just think that basically encourages a callousness to the scriptures when instead it's really taking it seriously and saying, gosh, this feels really harsh. And I'm going to see what's at play here and see if this, if I'm supposed to take this as at first glance, or if there's other things at play. And so I would say just so often we hear that as like, see, you're just trying to like appease your emotions rather than it's really just taking the text very seriously and trying to understand what's happening here. So, yeah. yeah. And the emotions are not inherently irrational. I think that's what's underlying (laughs) that kind of assumption or response of, oh, you're just being emotional. Therefore you're being irrational. Actually emotions can be very insightful and revealing. And perhaps if women consistently feel very uncomfortable and feel pain around the way these passages are interpreted, perhaps it's because we feel a sense from the Holy Spirit that it's not all there is and that there is more that God is trying to communicate to his daughters and to his sons through these passages. So I do just need to say that an emotional response is not inherently irrational. It can actually be revealing and perhaps revealing of something the Holy Spirit is trying to show us. Whew, that's a word in and of itself, Heather. <laughs> so let's um, let's look at one of these passages. So we're going to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And this w- is the same letter that we were starting with in the episode last week. So all of that cultural context is at play here. This is the church in Corinth. So there's a lot of different worship that people may have been coming out of as they are beginning to worship Jesus. And so there's this kind of understanding of there's other things maybe at play in the lives of the people who are a part of this church. And so we have to take that seriously um, as well. And it's important for us as we get into this to remember, as we looked at first Corinthians 11, um, we heard that women and men are prophesying. And so 
we will, um, it's just good for us to have that in our minds as we are looking at the text. And so we'll look at this chapter 14, uh, verse 29 is where we're going to start. And so this is kind of continuing in that same vein, really, because again, that was just chapter 11. There's no chapters or verses in the original letter. So Paul's just flowing freely about what it looks like to have order in their church services and to do that in a way that really honors godly love for one another. So 1 Corinthians 13, you've probably heard, it's actually not about weddings. It is about the way that we embody spiritual gifts and our worship um, and interactions with one another. So that is where we're picking up kind of from there. So we have that beautiful chapter about embodying God's love. And then we're getting into what it looks like to have order as we're expressing those gifts from a place of love. So in that order, we hear this. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So there's a lot happening here. Um, and we are getting this idea of order in the church and it's hard to hear, honestly. Um, this idea of silence is sounds very harsh at first glance and so um I think it's important again for us to take this in conjunction with first Corinthians 11 where Paul is very clearly saying that the women are supposed to prophesy but they're just supposed to do it in a way that doesn't mix their culture of cult worship with the way that they're prophesying a word from God and so again, we can't, we have to, with intellectual integrity say, well, Paul just said that. And now he's saying women should be silent. So no one escapes this without asking some questions. If you are reading it with intellectual integrity. And I would just say, I really believe that one of the reasons it's really easy to kind of disregard those is because we also have to ask the question about the church prophesying and having that be a regular part of their worship if we are really contending with these things. And I really believe we just have such an anemic understanding of the power of God that we, we don't actually want to contend with that reality of spiritual gifts. So it's easy for us to kind of put that out of mind and then just focus 
on this chapter and say the women should be silent um, rather than us really having a hard look at the fact that we actually don't need much order in our churches right now. Um, and so it's easier for us to just focus on one part of this and that's the women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting point about the connection between the way that churches or denominations even emphasize or de-emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the role of women in the church. And often those two things are parallel to one another, either elevated together or diminished together. And I think that's interesting that, you know, it's more food for thought as we keep teasing an episode in season two about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. I promise we are going to get to it, but this is yet another reason why we need to. And this is something that I would say, even if you are a what theologically we would call a cessationist of someone who believes that the gifts of the spirit are no longer practiced. Uh, from what I've heard from some cessationists, maybe they were outliers, I don't know, but I have heard cessationists say that the gift of prophecy is now preaching, which I just think is interesting. If you're someone who thinks that the gifts of the spirit are no longer active and that preaching is now an expression of prophecy and prophesying, Paul is encouraging women to prophesy. So I just want, I think that's food for thought, something to consider. Great point. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Um, so what, what is going on here? If we have to hold these things in tension that Paul is saying women should prophesy and also that women should be silent, now that he's talking about order, um, like what, what's really happening here? And I would say there's a few ways that scholars who land in an egalitarian place um, or believing that women can speak in church, um, there's a few interpretations here that have been, have lasted, I would say. And the first is that this is just an insertion into the letter that Paul never actually wrote this. Um, I don't find that to be particularly compelling because there's not actually ancient manuscripts that are missing this passage. So there's just, for me, that's not a very easy answer. Um, you have to, there's actually more questions that come with that. So um, if you want to do a deep dive, there are a few reasons that people say that, but we're not going to really spend time there because it's not, we don't find it to be a very compelling um, response. The other would be that this is women actually like interrupting the service and asking questions and disrupting things. And so they are being encouraged to learn that they, that is a part of this, um, which is not insignificant, but that, you know what, like don't ask questions in the middle of service. It's super distracting if you have a question, ask your husband at home because he's probably a little bit more educated based on just culture. Um, and so if you're if you have a question, save it for later, um, which really is like a good teaching principle. Like a lot of us have been in lectures where maybe someone would say, we're going to have a Q&A time, save your questions for the end. I might answer them. Right. So that's kind of what Paul's doing here theoretically, that he would say, 
stop asking so many questions. It's super distracting. You have to be quiet because you've been getting out of order. Yeah, I do think this is a place where we have added yet another place where we've added contempt that's not necessarily inherently there, where I think that I, I at least have often heard the part where it's like, if you have questions, ask your husband at home. I hear it as being kind of contemptuous and dismissive. And I don't hear it as, hey, hold on to your questions. It's great that you want to learn new things. Make sure you get your questions answered in a more appropriate context. So I think I don't think that we ever really acknowledge that part of Paul actually affirming women learning and being allowed to ask questions and have them answered, just not in a way that disrupts corporate worship. And so I think we could read it instead as if you have questions, make sure you ask your husband at home. You right. know, like that's a very different reading and a very different tone. It's so true because the fact that women are learning is again, like just a reminder that that's a part of the new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. Like that was not a part certainly of Jewish culture, but really not a part of a lot of the cultures in the first century that women would not have been in a place where they are learning and becoming like a real spiritual leader um, and certainly not very educated in that sense. And so I think that is a big point that's so easy to miss in this is that Paul is affirming their scholarship. He's just saying, not in a way that interrupts people. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties in with Mary and Martha, with Mary being silent to learn before Jesus alongside the men who would have been silent before Jesus as well, for the record. Um, and Protini, the woman at the well, that she's asking Jesus questions, theological questions, and he's affirming them and engaging with her and helping her learn and get the answers to her questions about the nature of God and the God's future intent for his people. And so I do think it's very possible. And I think we should assume that Paul is following the example of Jesus in the way Jesus is teaching women and affirming their theological questions as valid and important. That's so good. One thing that's kind of related to this interpretation that I've heard um, just more recently is that women may have been, this may have been specific to prophetic words. So this would make sense because right before it, they're talking about how many people are allowed to give prophetic words and the fact that you want to give space for them to be tested so that someone can say like, okay, that lines up. Like that actually sounds a lot like what Susie said last week. And so God is really emphasizing this for our community or like, actually that's against scripture. So we're going to test that and say, not a good word. Um, so there's potential here that this would be referring to that practice of weighing prophetic words and that women may have been a part of like particular power plays. So this would kind of make sense with first Corinthians 11 of like, there were power plays at work there. So you might be put in a situation where maybe your husband is giving a prophetic word and you're like, bad word. And that's super awkward. Or someone that like, maybe you had an argument with in the marketplace or your husband had a really bad business deal go down. Um, and so now you're going to be taking it out on them 
in their prophetic words. And so it's, I thought that was a compelling particularity of the way that women may have been interrupting the service because it just is so in line with the fact that they are prophecy is such an emphasis in the book of first Corinthians. And so it's possible that that particularity was a part of how the women were interrupting service. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And maybe I'm, it might be a blend of some of these, you know, that it could be multiple dynamics at once. I think that fits with, this was where I thought the ESV translation was helpful. There's going to be a few places as we continue talking where I think it's unhelpful. Um, But in verse 30, where it says, if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should be silent. And then it uses that same word of like, I, women should remain silent in the church. So there's, seems like a a wider dynamic that Paul is drawing on of not interrupting and not being disruptive, but letting people speak one at a time. And certainly I think we've been emphasizing that it's worth continuing to emphasize that the heart of this chapter is about order in worship. And if Paul is telling women to be silent in the situation, it would seem that it's because there's some kind of disorder happening. And so he's like, it's not that women should never talk (laughs) or do things in church. It's that corporate worship is not the place to do that. And I do think it's important that we note too, and Jamie, you alluded to this already, but for Jesus ushering in a new way of worship in Jewish worship, men and women were in separate parts of the temple and separate parts of synagogues, and they didn't worship side by side. And so you've got this blend of pagans who are now recent converts bringing their idol worship practices that they're trying to like sift through and eliminate. And then we've got Jewish Christians who are recent converts who are used to sitting separately and they're trying to figure out what does it look like for all of us to worship together. And it's really exciting and it's really complicated And you run into problems and like confusion and chaos when you've got a lot of different people bringing in a lot of different previous practices, and now they're trying to create something new together in the bond of Christ. And so it makes sense, one, that Paul is like, here's how to have an orderly service. (laughs) This is actually a very necessary teaching. (laughs) Um, And that there might be then specific cultural things at work. Uh, so like perhaps the women were just used to asking each other questions and they used to sit in the back so they could do that without being that disruptive. But now here they're all mixed in together and maybe they're sitting towards the front and everyone can hear them now. And so it does just seem like rather than this complete women should never teach or talk in church at all full stop, that it's more specifically don't disrupt the service and you need to learn new ways of worshiping as a collective community that are collaborative rather than some kind of like chaotic or power struggle. That's such a good reminder. It's, it's actually pretty wild to think about being a part of one of these early communities and being like, wait a second, I don't have to sit like in the back and separate and what is this going to look like? And so it makes sense that Paul would have to have conversations with them about what it looks like, because it's actually pretty wild to think about being one of the women in the first church services where you get to just 
sit next to your husband like you might it's like when you get to like sit next to your friends at church for the first time instead of like your parents (laughs) like you end up whispering and like asking questions you might just get excited about it like I'm allowed to sit next to you (laughs) (laughs) so true So um, there's another interpretation here that I think is also super interesting and um, a growing number of scholars, I think, are kind of accepting this as a dominant interpretation for them. Um, The first person that I have heard of who had this interpretation is Catherine Bushnell, who uh, was a woman in the 1800s who basically was like, I'm going to learn Hebrew and Greek so that someone else doesn't have to translate this for me. I'm going to do it. And then she went back and looked at every passage that had to do with women and wrote a commentary on it. It's fascinating. So she had this interpretation and then um, some other recent scholars, one of which I studied under in college, Dr. Odell Scott and um, some others. So if you want to look into this, Dr. Odell Scott is a good one uh, to read, or Catherine Bushnell. Her style is just a little archaic for us at this point, so it's actually a little bit hard to read, but um, basically, there's, we don't have quotation marks in the Greek language. There's no way to say, like, I'm quoting you, Heather, in this letter, but what we do have are different, like, participles and different characters and so that is that appears in this passage and so again we talked last week about how we're only getting one side of the phone call we don't know what Paul was told before he was writing this letter we're just getting his words and so you find different places where he definitely is interacting with things that he's heard about the community obviously he's just generally heard that there's a lot of craziness happening in the service, a lot of disorder. So he's addressing that. But it could be right before verse 36, there is a a participle that would kind of separate things. And it's almost like inserting like a what before it. So you would hear it like this, like he is quoting um, that all the churches and the saints, women should keep silent as the law also says, it is shameful for women to speak in church. And then verse 36, what? Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that has reached? So it's like he is responding to this idea that women should keep silent. And his response is basically, listen, do you think you're the only ones that God has spoken to? Like the word of God didn't just hit you. The gospel is for men and women. And So it's basically, there's a character before it. So there's reason to believe that that is what's happening. But also, I think it makes sense in the context of having a conversation basically in the letter. And then one thing for me that is very compelling about this interpretation is the fact that if this was like a quote, so he's basically saying like, if you wanna be a prophet, you have to like take my word seriously. So the idea is that probably he's quoting a prophet, a supposed prophet in their community. And it says, as the law says, well, Paul was a student of the Jewish law. 
And so if they're pointing to the Jewish law, there is no such thing that says women have to keep silent in the church because they weren't in the service. So there wasn't anything that said that. Um, and so to me, that's a part of why this is so compelling because it seems so odd for basically, I mean, Paul goes on at different points in different letters that he's writing where he's like, don't forget, like I am very learned in the law. Like I'm the best at knowing the law basically. And for him to cite the law, which we have no clue what he could have been referring to just feels very strange. So to me, it makes a lot of sense that there would be this idea of like a dialogue back and forth. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. In particular, to me, especially the greatest support for that is, yeah, what law is he talking about? <laughs> if that's what he's saying of like, well, the law, we all know the law says ladies can't talk. Like, that's just not <laughs> accurate. And as we have talked about in many episodes, there are female prophets in the Old Testament. Like there's clearly women who are exerting spiritual authority and just spiritual guidance in the Jewish community. So yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And there aren't any laws about women being silent, but where there are laws in the Old Testament is for sure about order and worship, that there's a ton of laws about the priesthood and about the temple and about worship in the temple. And they're all focused on the holiness of God and making sure that God is the center of worship and that everything around worship is conducive to putting the focus on the presence of God. And so that fits with what Paul is teaching in general in this passage about order and worship and making sure God is at the center of our worship services and that we're not putting ourselves at the center of it. Um, so that part fits. But yeah, there aren't laws of like, ladies can't talk, as it says in Leviticus, burr, burr, burr. like that just isn't a thing. So I think that's very interesting that, yeah, what if he's instead quoting um, a misteaching or a false teaching? And saying like, what? No, that's actually, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Because he says, as in all the churches of the saints, and we know for sure that that's not happening in all the churches of the saints, because as we'll look at in other episodes, like there are women who are great teachers. And so to say, I'm affirming this because of it's the case in all the churches. Like that's just, you would have to hold so many things in tension to take that at face value. So I think it's really an interesting thought and it just fits with the reality of Paul is writing to a community that he knows, that he's heard about, that he is having ongoing conversations with. And so he understands the kind of things that are like dominant cultural conversations in the church. And so if something is getting like grasping a hold in that community, then he would address it by name, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one more thing that stood out to me this time in a way that it hasn't before, the differences between translations uh, between the ESV and the NIV. And the ESV is known to be more complementarian and the NIV is known to be more gender inclusive. And that happens in places where it's a question mark of sometimes like this word or this phrase could mean this or that. And so the translators make a decision to pick 
one of the meanings, or sometimes often in the ESV, especially a, a word is used that is gender neutral. That means brothers and sisters, and they shorten it to just be brothers. And they're like, oh, people will know what we're talking about. Um, we're going to talk about that when we study Acts. Um, but as I was, I was listening to Jamie read it in the ESV and I was following along in the NIV. And there's a distinct difference in punctuation between the two translations that really changes the meaning of the text. So the NIV in verse 33 says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, period. And then goes on, women should remain silent in the churches. Whereas the ESV says, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, comma, women should remain silent in the churches. So it's changing what's happening in all the congregations. Is it order or is it women being silent? And I just want to point that out. And if you're having, maybe you're having a hard time understanding what I'm talking about with me saying it, I would encourage you, if so, to look it up and compare the two translations. But I think that's fascinating that in the NIV, it just says, Paul is like, listen, in all the congregations, this is what's universally true, that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then here's something else. So in light of that, don't disrupt the service. Or... Like that's a very different meaning from in all the congregations of the churches, women are to be silent. Those are two very different scenarios. Wow. My jaw was dropped. You couldn't see that, but that is wild. Um, and I think just like, if you want to be super nerdy as we're getting a little deep today, um, take a look in the first few pages of your like actual Bible and see, they'll actually tell you in the beginning, the kind of choices that they're making. So the ESV will tell you anytime that there's an androgynous, like, Hey, all y'all, we are going to say brothers, we're going to make that choice. And they tell you that that's the choice that they are going to make. Um, and there's other places where they just kind of acknowledge like, Hey, here's all of the interpretive translation choices that we're making. And I would be so interested to see if they address that or if anyone has addressed that in from mm -hmm. the ESV committee, but that is a huge difference to say, actually God is peaceful in every place that he ever moves because that is that. And that fits so much more with scripture like that is a reality that we know to be true about God, that he isn't confusing, that he's not a God of confusion and he is a God of order and peace. And so um, that everywhere that God moves, that would be true of the movement of his spirit. Makes sense to me. Exactly. And I think that's in general, an important interpretive tool. If there is a question mark of this could go either way and genuinely this translate, this translation could go either way, that it could be, it's universally about God of peace, or it's universally about women being silent. So that's worth noting that it's, it's a question mark in the interpretive community, in the translation community. Um, but when there is that question mark, you have to hold it up to what's the wider context, what are wider patterns that we see, and how does this fit with the rest of scripture? Because you let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's, I think, interpretive lesson number one. And to me, at least, 
I think, like you said, Jamie, it's pretty clear that this chapter is about order and God being glorified and the nature of God being shown in their worship, which is that he's a God of peace, that if, if new people walk into a worship service and it's chaotic and there's power struggles and people are like publicly calling each other out in their prophecies and whatnot, <laughs> that's a turnoff. That's like, why would you want to be part of that? That's not something that would draw you in. But if you come in and you realize this is a place of mutuality and respect and love defined by love from the previous chapter, then that's something that is going to be invitational and is going to draw people into the faith. And they're going to say, I think this could be a place of belonging for me. And I want to be part of that. That makes sense that that's who God is and that that's what worship should reflect. It doesn't make sense that who God is, is that women should be silent because that's just not what we see in other places. And we're going to keep talking about this for the next several episodes. It's not what we see in Paul's ministry. So it's okay to name that there is a question mark about where the punctuation should go. And because there's a question mark, look to the context to help us figure out how it best fits. Right. I think that's so important because it's, he closes it out. It's, it's like, it's bookmarked with order. So he says again, like, Hey, everyone, which by the way, when I read it, it said brothers, that's, Hey, everyone eagerly desire to prophesy. So like, I know I'm giving you an order by which to do it, but don't let that quench you. Like everyone should desire to prophesy. Everyone should desire the spiritual gifts, but do them in order. And so that's how he closes kind of this portion of his letter is by saying, I'm not trying to stop you from prophesying. I'm just trying to help you do it in a way that's really edifying, um, which is the point of prophecy in the New Testament that within this letter, he says that prophecy is for the edification and the building up of the church. So when he tells women to do that in chapter 11, and then again, as he's closing this chapter, then he is saying, I want everyone to build up the church. I just want it to make sense. And so regardless of which interpretation you take, there's things that you have to contend with. There's just a tension at play that you have to acknowledge and have integrity to dig deep and figure out what do I actually think about this? Because nothing at first glance makes sense about it. And so you have to pull back a few layers wherever you land with that, but you just, you have to do some work here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jamie, I'm just, I'll kind of end this section with reading those verses 39 and 40 in the NIV. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So yeah, if he just said women are to be silent and then he says, okay, sisters, be eager to prophesy, <laughs> that's public speaking. You, you prophesy to the body. So yeah, there, there just needs to be questions that we acknowledge and that we wrestle with. So good. So we're going to hit um, the next place that is often used to exclude women from ministry is the letter that Paul writes um, to the church in Ephesus to Timothy. Um, and so if you are curious about the general dynamic at play in the church in Ephesus, you can see that in Acts 18 to 20, 
Um, but what we know is that false teachers are really prevalent in this community. There's also a lot of cult worship happening, cult worship, I think I combined those. Um, and so the cult of Artemis is really one of the dominant um, goddesses that's involved. So that's a fertility goddess, which will make a lot of sense when we get to um, a little bit later in this passage. And because of that, there's a lot of creation narratives that are just um, cultural narratives that really center Eve and make her the dominant figure. So much like we talked about in the church in Corinth, where there's kind of these, and in our own culture, where there's both this elevation of women and degradation of women all at the same time, um, that's at play here too as well. And so we'll see a lot in the letters. There's two letters that Paul writes to this church um, that there's a lot happening that's corrective about it. And so this is not didactic or like instructive overall, a lot of it. Um, there's obviously things that are edifying. And so we're not saying that like it's not worthwhile, but that there's so much in the letter that is correcting things that have gone astray in the church community. And so it really fits in to that way that Paul is being a really good apostle to them. He's saying, listen, I want you to like follow in the ways of Jesus. And you guys are getting a little bit off track. You've listened to too many false teachers. And it's important, we know in 2 Timothy, that in particular, women were really falling into the narratives of false teachers. They probably had less education. And so when they are doing really earnest work to be educated, the false teachers just kind of make sense um, because they, they don't have as much understanding. And so uh, we see that there. So it makes sense that there would be some particular things that are addressed to women if the women are having a particular experience with the false teachers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, I hope that by the end of this, you'll realize, I think Paul actually is for women and values women. And what's funny is you could actually, I think we ought to see this in many ways as affirming of Paul being like, oh man, I see the challenges that are happening amongst the women in the community and I wanna help them resolve them so that there is peace and mutuality. Instead of like, we always interpret it as like Paul is singling out women and like dismissing us and telling us we're terrible. Instead, you could see it. And I hope that we'll be able to show that Paul is like, man, women are going, are facing some unique challenges. And I wanna give them guidance for how to navigate that. That's so good. Well, let's read First um, Timothy 2. And Heather's going to pick up there with kind of in the middle, Paul's addressing just, again, a general order of worship and prayer that he wants to see in their church. Yes. So picking up in verse eight, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. 
A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So it definitely wow. doesn't feel on the surface like Paul is affirming women. <laughs> no, it also is just bizarre. Like there's just some strange things in there. Like what is this about childbirth and Eve? Like there's some things that you have to say. You you basically cannot read this and then walk away and say, makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Like you have to contend with some things in this chapter if you are to take Paul's words seriously, um, at least consistently, like there's some things that we'll get to about the Eve and Adam piece where it's like, if you read other parts of Paul, then you know, that's not what he thinks. So you have to think through what's at play here. So he starts by saying that men should stop fighting while they pray. And that seems like a great idea. Um, and so I would say we don't often see a lot of quarreling in our prayer meetings, but obviously they did like, you would have to have word that there's fighting in the prayer meeting for you to be like, listen, lift up your holy hands. Don't use them against each other. Like lift up your hands. Don't throw hands. (laughs) (laughs) So like it wouldn't make sense for him to say that if he hadn't already heard that there were things happening. And then he says, likewise. So like in the same manner, also women should be modest. And he goes on to describe what that modesty is. And it's so different than what I think we often describe modesty as in terms of like sensuality. But this is really about not being ostentatious and flashy, that it's much more about like, basically a preachers and sneakers kind of experience of like, keep your Gucci belt off the stage. It's really distracting. Um, and he's really there advocating for like a, an equity in the community and that there wouldn't be ways that people are left out and that you wouldn't be trying to define yourself by anything. Cause he says, instead of clothing yourself and all your fancy stuff, clothe yourself instead in what we are to be defined by, which is good works. And so he's saying like, we're all bringing the same thing to the table in the kingdom of God. And so we're all just going to bring our good ways of following Jesus and kind of level the playing field rather than their braids, which would have cost a lot of money, their gold, their pearls. And I think that's a really good thing for us to take away from this passage. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you talk about this for the first time just a couple months ago, Jamie, and I had never heard that interpretation because as soon as you see the word modest, you assume it's about sexuality and your body mm-hmm. and like being provocative. And so that's how I've always thought about it. That's how I've always heard it discussed is that it's like, ladies stop being provocative in church. <laughs> And I still think probably we shouldn't be provocative in church, you know, like still, that's probably not the best, Um, but I think it's so interesting that it's actually don't flaunt your wealth. Like don't, 
don't make your identity about your appearance and your image. And first of all, like, don't do that for yourself and don't do that in order to put other people down. And I think those are some really important reminders, especially today as we wrestle with so much of our lives are online and are curated, that we curate our online image. And especially on Instagram for women in particular, it's very much of how are you presenting yourself? How do you want people to view you? Are you fitting a standard of body type and lifestyle status? Does your house look a certain way? Do you have really cool decor that's hip and mid-century modern? <laughs> um, you know, there's just a lot of trying to meet standards that we just kind of have fabricated or hold ourselves to or hold each other to. That's really burdensome and at best distracting and at worst really discouraging and, and shame-filled for women. And, and men can experience that too. And so I think there's really beautiful encouragement here from Paul of like, that's not what makes us important. Our public image and showing off is not what makes us important. What makes us valuable is our love for God and the way that we live that out in our communities. And I think about a, a young bond servant woman who might be reading this, who is poor, who's in servitude because she's working off debt. She's in servitude because of poverty and she doesn't have anything fancy. And she's coming to uh, Timothy's church and she reads this or hears this read and she can be like, it doesn't matter that I don't have pearls and can't pay to get my hair braided. I'm clothed in good deeds. And that's what God loves. That's so beautiful. I'm getting emotional about that. <laughs> That's just such a lovely affirmation that the Lord's like, I don't care about that stuff. I don't care about what the world cares about. I care about your love for me and your love for one another and the way you live that out. That's just a really beautiful reset, I think, then and for us today as well. Right. Uh, that's such a beautiful picture. And I think, like you said, for right now, like that we don't have to project a particular image to belong to the community of God, but that we get to show up and celebrate the work of God in our midst. And I think that's um, part of what Paul is inviting us to focus on. Um, so I think once we already have that, like, because otherwise it sounds like he is saying like body shaming, mm -hmm. if we take modesty as we've often experienced it, um, and so we, we're already removing Paul's not body shaming. He's actually making a corrective to a flashiness. Um, and then he says that a woman should learn quietly with all submissiveness. And this is a place where I think we definitely add things into the text because we have assumed an interpretation that we talked about last week. And so we add in that a woman might be submissive to someone rather than a submission to the text and that they would be learning quietly. And so that's like, for me, those both have to do with the posture and quietly, like the word that's used there, that is much more like a peaceability rather than a volume level. And so really we're starting to get this picture of Part of what Paul's doing is saying, men, you should be peaceful by not fighting while you're praying. Women, 
don't be distracting with your flashiness. And also you should practice peaceability by your submission to the text and that you should learn. Again, very important to not let that pass us by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He's affirming learning to number one, learning is at the beginning of that sentence. And yeah, I just think that's such a beautiful exhortation for all people, not just women, of submitting to the word of God. Because I think that's where good scholarship originates, is that we are coming to the scripture with open hands, and we want the word to shape us, not us coming with preconceived opinions and ideas and wanting to shape the word. And I think that's where we've gotten a lot of these patriarchal interpretations because we have come wanting to shape the word with our social lens, our cultural lens, our power structure lens. And then we're like, oh yeah, the Bible must fit what I already am doing rather than saying, I don't know if what I'm doing is right or not. Let me come to the word of God and see what it says and then mold my life to the truth of God. And that actually brings to mind for me when I was deepest in my crisis around being a woman in the church and really deeply questioning whether God loved and valued me and what my place was. And I was in a pretty major place of what we might call deconstruction of just kind of, again, this crossroads and turning point, like, I don't know anything anymore. And I feel scared and I feel afraid of what does God really think? And I just remember very clearly, I was in my mid twenties and I just came before the Lord and I was like, God, I don't want to know what's true because I'm not sure what that is, but I want to know what's true. And yeah, it's making me emotional because that's, that's a, a bold posture because what if we don't like <laughs> what the word says? And what if it, the word asks us to walk away from idols in our lives? And what if the word asks us to shift beliefs that we've had? or step out in faith in new ways. That's actually a very bold and powerful stance to say, I'm gonna submit to the word of God. It sounds like it's somehow weakness or like erasing yourself, but I think it's actually a very courageous posture to say, I wanna know what's true above all else, even above my own desires or my own society. And I want the truth of God to be what leads me more than anything else. That's really beautiful. And I think like, so it's important for us to not separate. We've talked so much about how we separate stories from one another in the text. And it's important for us to not separate that verse from the verse that follows it. Because I really think as we'll get to it, there's a, there's an issue of control that's happening. And so if you are submitted to the text, you're already surrendering a level of control by saying, I, I'm just submitted to you and what you have to say, Lord. And so um, as we take that posture to the text, then we get to the next verse where it seems like Paul is saying, I, you know, I'm rejecting authority. And it's important here, first of all, for us to name, um, he says, I do not permit. And there's a tense in the Greek language that we do not have. So like we have past tense, present tense. There's a tense that doesn't exist that's in the Greek language where Paul is not necessarily saying like, I am not permitting 
like period. But he's saying, I am not permitting particular. Like I do not permit versus I am not permitting. In this case, I'm not permitting um, is basically the tense of the verb that's being used here. So we have that from the beginning. And then we get to a really important hinge point of this passage. And if you Google this, you will see a ton of hits. Um, the Greek word for authority there is authentain. And this is a word that is not used at any other place in the New Testament for authority. So obviously Paul does talk about authority in other places. He never uses this word. And there's, so we have to look outside of scripture to say at this time period, how else was this word used? Because he's clearly using it on purpose in this particular circumstance. And so we have with that, we learn that it means to usurp authority and that really there's a very violent connection to that in other um, places where it's used. There's a connotation that this is like almost like a coup is happening. So there's a usurping of authority with a real intentionality of ill will, basically. And I think that's huge. And there's a lot there that says, again, like we have to just question with intellectual integrity, why would Paul use a word that he never uses in other places? There has to be something happening in this community that makes him say, there is something really off about how you are exercising your authority right now. And you, I'm not permitting this to happen right now because it's really destructive. And that's huge for the application of this broadly, because I don't think Paul is making a universal statement. I think he's making a statement about what it looks like for the women in this particular community who have been exercising their authority in destructive ways. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree that I think the fact that this is a single usage of this word does give it a sense that it's speaking to a specific situation that he's like, man, the other ways that I talk about authority don't fit here. I need something with extra heft in order to address what's happening in this church. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I would say, even if we are going to interpret it as like, this is a for everyone teaching. I think if we understand the meaning of the word that it's to usurp authority with the intent to like dominate and like destroy, that's not good. And I'm actually, I'm fine with that never being okay. <laughs> so even if we're saying like, this is forever and always, I'm actually still fine with that because I don't think that the answer of, like the answer to oppression is just to oppress in return. That's just being defined by oppression and not being able to imagine anything else. And I think like we talked about in our last episode with Ephesians 5 being an antidote to Genesis 3, um, to the power struggles and just the temptations for sin and manipulation and control and power um, and exploitation that can happen between men and women, that I think this is very easily addressing that. 
And you're saying like, the answer is not to then just turn around and dominate men and try to oppress men. The answer in the Lord's church in the body of Christ is mutuality and shared respect and shared submission to Christ. And that as we're submitting to Christ and submitting to the word of God, that leads to really beautiful collaboration and partnership. That's the goal in, in the church. And so I, I agree with this. I agree with Paul. You're right. <laughs> like we aren't calling women to dominate men. We're calling for just really vibrant partnership in the gospel. So good. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is actually like a really, it's not just a key to understanding like if women have authority, but how everyone is to exercise authority, that none of us are to do it in a way that really harms the people around us. And I think that's huge. Um, and so, like you said, like that's something that we all should say yes to. And that's like, that is a universal application. And I think a really, frankly, a good word for us in the modern church, um, so I think we, we see from there that there's this conversation about Eve and Eve was a transgressor and Eve was not born first. So like we said, that is um, a way of correcting a creation narrative that was at play in the culture. And so, you know, it makes sense to me that you would come in, you would have some other narratives at play, and then you kind of start to blend them and get them a little confused like oh that creation story sounds like the one I grew up with and so Paul's saying no I have to draw a line here because you're taking from that really confusing things and then we have this very strange verse about childbearing um and so again that's where I'm I really want us to name the reality that no one gets away from this chapter without questions. So we have to ask, salvation comes from childbirth. Like that is not at all what Paul has said in other places. Salvation comes through Christ alone and that we are recognizing that also if you don't have kids, like Paul says in first Corinthians, that's a really valuable way to live. And so there's no way that he would be saying you can only be saved as a woman, if you have kids, like, so that has to be out the window. Um, I think with any bit of integrity. And so remember the dominant goddess that's at play in the culture is the fertility goddess. So there would be a lot of trust and appeal to the fertility goddess. If you're pregnant, um, I think so often as I would say particularly like as a white woman, I see childbirth right now as like kind of a not that scary, but for many women, it is both in our country and around the world, even still, but certainly in the first century, childbirth could be deadly and frankly, quite often would be deadly. And so you would be kind of appealing to any one that you can, um, for your help. And he's saying like, listen, that is a God that cannot help you. But if you trust in Jesus, like there's a salvation that will come and 
you will continue in the way of, of the Lord and holiness and propriety. And so I think there's something there that we have to remember the context of a fertility goddess being at play in the culture and this bringing in of childbearing. Right. And I think all of that fits really perfectly with what you were saying about this being a corrective rather than instruction that I think it's very easy to see how every point that he's making is a corrective against their surrounding culture that he's saying don't dominate men that's not the point also like you don't have to change the creation narrative it's not a bad thing that eve was created second listen to our eve episodes (laughs) if you haven't listened to those yet um and like i don't think he's saying like eve is the sinner and adam was totally fine because obviously as jamie said in the book of romans paul is like as in adam all die So Paul himself believes that Adam is culpable and um, has a shared responsibility for original sin. (laughs) So, but I think this verse has been used so much to bring shame to women and to cause us shame around Eve, that it's like, Adam wasn't deceived, Eve was. Eve was the big dummy. She was the one who just fell into the trap and Adam was too smart for that. You know, that's, I think how we've always taken it or certainly how I've often heard it. And instead, I think he's like, it's okay that Eve is created second as the glorious pinnacle of creation. That's fine. That's not a bad thing. And while we're talking about it, (laughs) as we're like talking about the goodness of God and submitting to the word of God, you don't have to trust in goddess worship when you are approaching childbirth. You can trust that God will save you and be your protector and defender. I think it's actually way more practical. It's weird that that's the one thing that we make abstract and theological and everything else we make like very straightforward and on the nose. And I'm just like, I think it's kind of the opposite actually. The other things that we're taking to be super face value, we should probably interrogate a little more. And then this weird thing that we're like, no, this is the spiritual abstract application of like, yes, you will find salvation from your sins through childbearing. No, that's silly. That's actually way more practical. And he's just like, God is the one that saves you. Not that salvation comes, but that God is your protector and the preserver of your life. That to me is a fairly simple understanding. That's such a good point about like what we choose to believe as abstract about the passage. That's so, so true. Well, I think part of the reason that this passage in particular like gains so much traction is that we see it flowing right from there into this kind of order which I have to say it makes sense to me that after Paul is saying listen y'all are like allowing multiple creation stories to be involved I need to tell you how to set up some authority structures in the church of elders and deacons. So he goes straight from there into these qualifications for elders and deacons. And um, the language that's, the word that's used there is an overseer. And um, some people have translated that to be like a bishop, but mostly we understand an overseer of the church to be 
like the elders of the church. So that's, um, that's what Paul goes into from there. So we'll read this and we, we won't go line by line with this one, but we, we are going to talk about what, what Paul's really getting at here. So this is chapter three. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now I'm reading from the ESV. So it says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And it goes on from there to give a few more qualifications. But there's a lot here. Um, and there's a few things that we kind of want to focus on as we unpack this. And the first is that you hear a lot of he in the passage. And that's not actually in the Greek. In the Greek, the pronouns would have been androgynous. So there's a choice being made when we interpret this to be a male pronoun. Um, and that's obviously like a very intentional choice. And I think some of that comes maybe from this phrase that we have translated a husband of one wife. And that is actually like this Greek idiom, kind of a colloquial thing that is a one woman man, which is to say that they're a person who is faithful in marriage, that they have like pursued fidelity towards their spouse. And frankly, I find it to be a very sweet phrase. Like it feels like something you would hear someone say at like a significant anniversary that mm -hmm. they've been a one woman man. And it's, I think it's quite lovely, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily tied to a gender thing. It is a statement that would be like a common phrase where people are saying, this is a person who has been faithful in their marriage. This is a person who has chosen, um, fidelity and not chosen to divorce and leave a woman by themselves. So if this is about gender, it's because the man would have been the one to divorce. And so to say a one woman man is actually a statement about their integrity towards their relationships on multiple levels. So I think that's like a really important point there that you would never, and it's also like, you can't separate out to have integrity to the Greek phrase, 
you would never pull out one word of that phrase. So it it's something that like sticks together. So it's not about the man part of that phrase, but rather about the meaning of the full phrase. <clears throat> so I think, again, this is a, not about gender. We have male pronouns and we have this a husband of one wife. And it's important for us to say, like, that's a good thing. We should want our elders to be people who conduct themselves with integrity and be people who value the closest relationships in their lives. And that that should continue into their whole household, which is this idea of a manager of their household. And so, um, and that piece is important to point out that later in the same letter, women are taught how to rule their household. And Paul himself refers to a woman, we'll get to it soon, um, as a manager of her household. And so this is not necessarily tied to gender. It may seem like the man of the head of the household kind of a thing, but it's more, it's actually more feminine to be the manager of the household in that culture than the man. But I think it's more about the way that they are conducting themselves because all of these are about a character trait and a posture rather than like an understanding of how their particular household functions. It's more about like, are you harsh to your children? Do you abuse your household? Are, are you abusive towards women that you divorce them at the drop of a hat? Like these are more about the ways in which they treat the people closest to them rather than like, do you have children? Right. Yeah. And I think we've gotten so preoccupied with this text as like, see, this is where men are supposed to be pastors and it can only be men that I think then we miss the really important and pretty rigorous qualifications for church leadership that I think are more necessary than ever. I mean, thinking about any kind of domestic violence or infidelity in relationship. I also jumped out like not a lover of money, <laughs> you know, that like you're not seeking your own wealth and gain by being in a position of power in the church. Um, I think there's really fascinating and ahead of its time guidance around confidentiality in this passage that it's talking about, like, don't be gossip, a gossip or a slanderer, because people in these roles are going to, in these roles of leadership are going to have a front row seat to people's lives and really pretty intense and delicate and private situations that the people they're caring for are going through. And so there's very clear guidance around maintaining confidentiality for the people that you're serving. And I, I have my master's in counseling, and that's just such a huge core of the mental health profession is confidentiality and how important that is for people to actually share and enter the healing process. So I love that the scripture is actually prescribing that and really understanding that in a way that wasn't necessarily prescribed by the culture, but is saying like, Hey, if you gossip and spread people's business around, they're not going to trust you. And they're not going to be able to know the Lord and experience the Lord's healing. And so if you're a leader and you're privy to private information, you need to keep it to yourself. And that's actually a qualification and a requirement for leadership and service. 
I think that's really important and really compelling. Yeah, it's, it just kind of makes sense. Um, and with that, that's a big part where it kind of shifts from like the deacons should not be double tongued. Um, and then it, I pointed out what translation I was using because um, really what it's saying here is the female deacons, the women, likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, sober-minded, faithful in all things, which it's such an interesting choice there because it's actually the same word in Greek, which is a word that we've brought into our culture, gyne. Um, and so if it would be, if it would include something that ties it to the man, like there, then it might be wives, but if it's not, then it's just women. And so it's kind of a word that means both things. There's no tying piece to it. So the fact that they say their wives is just actually really irresponsible because that's not what it says. Um, it's saying the women should also not be slanderous. And it kind of, it's basically the same qualifications, but it, it does not have anything about wine, probably because women were not as involved in the drinking culture. Like that would have been just not a part of their culture. So they, that one gets left out Instead, it's just generally sober minded that they would take their tasks seriously. Um, that they would be dignified and faithful in all things, but that I think there's things there where it's basically just addressing propensity of men and women. And so men would be more tempted to be a drunkard because they're allowed to be in their culture. Um, women, not so much. So just be sober-minded, take it seriously. Um, and both are reminded to not be slanderers, but we often emphasize it with the women. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. Maybe we'll talk about that in future episodes of how much it's just assumed that women are gossips and men never are. <laughs> um, so I do think this is important, but it's like neither of you should gossip or spread people's business around. Yeah. And if we're going to be, if we are taking such a literal reading of it, that it's like, okay, this is foundation that only men can be leaders because it says husband of one wife, and that means it's a man. Well, then do we also pay attention to where it says like, you have to be married, first of all, and you have to have kids seemingly in order to qualify for leadership. And we don't necessarily hold men to that standard in order to be leaders in the church. We let men be leaders in whatever phase of life they're in. And so I think that's, something that also lacks integrity is like, well, if you're saying this is the basis for why it has to be men, then it also needs to be a man who's married with kids. And that would preclude a lot of people and it would preclude Paul and Jesus. So yes. again, like, it just has to be more complex and more layered than that. Right. Like that's where if we're allowing scripture to interpret itself, then we have to say, Paul actually affirms a a life where you're not married. He says it's actually better for serving the kingdom for a lot of people. And so if that's the case, then he would never say you have to be married. But instead, I think what he's getting at, like we said, is if you're married, 
you should really value that. That should be a marker of your life that you are treating that marriage as the covenant that God sees it as. And so I think it's actually just really quite compelling as as we've said, like, it's a good story. If we peel back some of the layers here and we say, I think there's a lot again for us to take away from this, that we have good questions to ask about our lives and the leaders around us, if they are people that are functioning in this way. And so, yeah, I think those are all things that are like really valuable for us to hold and take seriously and to say, actually, these are good qualities for us to consider. And for us to do that, knowing that, again, these pronouns are he or she, basically. And so it you could reread the whole thing and say, he or she should be these things. And so I think that in and of itself is maybe a good exercise for some to do if they haven't been around many women leaders in the church to kind of reread that passage with that invitation for, hey, all y'all, this is the <laughs> qualification for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really cool exhortation and exercise that people can keep pondering and keep practicing. Yeah, I think yeah, there's just so much here. And I think I would just say, like, if you are going to take this seriously, again, no one escapes this without asking questions. And so, like we said, we have to ask the question of, like, would Paul really exclude himself as an apostle from being an elder and a deacon? Like, that doesn't quite make sense. And so there's things that if we are to be people of integrity, we have to say there's things in tension here. There's questions that we come away asking. And I think it's only responsible for us to dig deep, peel away a lot of what's been added on to it and say, what's really happening here? And in a culture where there was so much happening in that church, it makes sense that he would say, you have to be sober-minded about this. Like, this is going to be difficult. You're going to be you know, doing some heavy lifting here. And so it's important to take this leadership role seriously, which I would say we would encourage everyone to do that. Like that is a good posture to have and therefore like an important thing to consider. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as we've been talking in this whole conversation and wrestling with this general theme of women being silent in church. I do not think that that is God's pattern with his daughters. I think we have seen in so many places throughout the Old Testament, and then for sure in the ministry of Jesus, that God is inviting his daughters to speak and to hear from him as well. And when I think about who tells women to be silent, I actually think that's Satan. I think that's a tool of the enemy to silence women, not the heart of God to silence women. I mean, we even have experienced it very strongly in recording this episode, Jamie. This is our actually a re-record of this episode. We recorded it 
a day prior and we worked for an hour to try to get my microphone working and we could not. And then we tried recording without it and then the sound just wasn't good enough. So I had to go buy a new microphone today because my microphone that was not old or seemingly damaged just inexplicably stopped working. And when I think about Satan silencing women, there you go. As we are contending with these passages that have been major tools for keeping women silent in church, that I think that's pretty clear evidence that that is the work of the enemy to want to perpetuate that and to want to maintain his stronghold over the voices of women and the presence of women in the community of faith. And I don't think that's who God is. I think we see Jesus inviting women to share and inviting women to tell about their encounters with him and about the ways that he has revealed himself to them. So I just think that's such an interesting dynamic that I want to name that I don't think it's God's pattern or God's heart that we would be silent. I actually think that's the desire of the enemy. That's such a good point. And yes, frankly, it's been a bit frustrating for us <laughs> the way um, the silencing has happened. But I think, again, like if we are to interpret scripture with itself, with the word of God, interpreting other places in the word of God, there's actually, like, I believe it's harder to say that this is the rule that women must be silent and everyone else is the exception to the rule. It's That's actually a more difficult thing than to say, when I look at the entirety of scripture, all the women that God has invited to play a role in his story, then I have to contend and say, these must be exceptions. These particular communities where there's something at play, I think there's a particular thing happening here. And I just think it, the reality is it's harder to say that the rule is that women should be silent if you're looking at the entirety of scripture. And it's important for us to just name that and have integrity with that. And, um, and I've heard men say that eventually that is how they started to dig deep into these passages is that they had accepted them at face value and just said, okay, until they kept having these women come up in the story of God, where they had to say, this has to be a, this cannot be the rule. These, all these women cannot be the exception. Mm -hmm. There's another thing happening here. And I, I just think we have to take the, the entirety of scripture seriously and hold all these things in tension and, and do that really responsibly. This has been such a fruitful conversation and wherever y'all land around women in leadership in the church, I hope that this can be healing and thought provoking for us. It, we don't all have to land in the exact same place around like the ordination of women, for example, but I hope that we are all leaving this conversation confident that God has a vibrant place for women in the body and has a place where women contribute meaningfully. Um, and for those of us who have trauma related to Paul and shudder when we hear people say, oh, I love Paul. I'm still coming out of that a little bit. Uh, but I hope that you have seen, I don't think Paul hates women. I don't actually think Paul has this weird ax to grind 
against women, I think that's just been patriarchy and the enemy exploiting that in order to suppress women and that Paul actually does value the role of women. And as we're gonna continue seeing, he works closely with tons of women in his ministry. And so as we leave this episode, as Jamie and I were preparing it, we were praying that this would be a place of honor for the two of us in our just healing and struggles and that it would be a place of honor for listeners and that it would cause you all to see yourselves as having a seat of honor in the presence of the Lord and in the presence of his people. So know that that is our prayer for you. And we hope that you have received that today. We always love hearing from you. We love hearing how you're uncovering your place in God's story. So please reach out to us, follow our Instagram account or on Facebook at Excavate Podcast, share stuff, message us if you want to talk about what you're learning rate and review the show if you're able to. It really helps other people find the podcast and you can also support us on Patreon. We've got that link in the show notes. So thanks again for journeying with us. And we're just so thankful that you want to dig in with us to uncover our place in God's story.